to some extent, when people think about the gig economy, we tend to think about Uber and Lyft, but to me at least, there is endless opportunities in trying to match between what people really want to do and the people have true needs rather than trying to just get into a full employment model, which is what we do now, where most of us, the majority of what we do is very limited in terms of value, in terms of the whole day. So the gig economy, is of, that's the, the idea if people want to think about that. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by Jay Ventures a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley in partnership with Lomitech and sponsored by Homeward Ventures, Hippo Insurance, Upwest, Hillel at Stanford, Leap, and Birthright Excel. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. I'm so excited for this episode because I have my good friend Gad alone with me, the Jeffrey A. Keswin Professor and Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions, and the Director of the Management and Technology Program at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an award-winning educator, teaching courses on scaling technology ventures and operations strategy. God's recent research primarily considers gig workers, quick decision-making, and the communication between firms and customers. He is the co-founder of 4Class, helping professors drive higher student engagement and accountability in the classroom. Meet God. God alone. Professor God alone. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Great to be here, Michael. God, I'm so happy that you're here and I'm so excited to do this episode together. You're the professor of operations, information and decisions and the director of the incredible M&T program of the University of Pennsylvania, professor also at Wharton and a thought leader in everything that comes to operations and scale. And, and I have to say on a personal level, I've been learning so much from you over, over the last year and a half or so. And, and it's such a true pleasure. Uh, and, and I'm excited to pick your brain now in, in 20 short minutes. I'm not gonna be able to encapsulate nearly as much as I want, but, but we're going to dive straight into the point. Tell me a little bit about what you, what do you work on? What, what does it even mean to concern yourself with the questions of, of operations, information, and scale? Yeah, that's a great question. So a little bit about myself, originally from, from Israel, as you can get from the accent and from the name, uh, did my PhD, worked for Israeli startups in, in large-scale databases, PhD at Columbia, 11 years at Kellogg and now at, at Wharton at, at Penn at the, as the director of management technology. But my background is really in, in very much two adjacent areas. On one side, a game theory and understanding economic theory, and at the same time, understanding queuing theory and operational theory. So I love what I do, whether it is related to scaling or related to the gig economy that I want to talk about in a second, is, is really about areas where you need to understand not only the nitty-gritty of processes, but you need to understand also how they actually embed themselves within a situation where you have different decision makers and potentially interact among themselves. So that's stuff like the intersection of these two can be platforms, can be supply chains, and can be the gig economy, which is where I spend a significant amount of time now. It, it sounds very simple, of course. Uh, tell me a little bit about, about the gig economy. It's, it's, uh, it's a relatively new new concept that you know is obviously taking the world by a storm, and, and not nearly enough people are thinking critically about it. But luckily, we have the amazing Gadalon who is. Tell me, tell me about what, what the gig economy in high level, and then tell me a few a few key concepts from our daily life. Yeah, so so I think at the very high level, um, there is really nothing new there. At the very high level, this is just a marketplace where people think about freelancers existed forever, like since essentially the dawn of civilization almost, you had freelancers. Um, 
what the gig economy brought, and we say gig economy, people, the name that come to mind are, of course, Uber and Lyft, but also Upwork and, and the Israeli Fiverr, and all the way to Catalan, and even beyond that. And, and all of these are, are essentially riding on the fact that all of us have a mobile device or in front of a laptop. And so continuously, they're able to match people that have a need, and the need can be a ride, can be a piece of software written, can be a, a furniture being assembled if it's TaskRabbit, and there is someone probably around you willing to do that. When I say around you, if it can be physical, if it's an Uber or Lyft, or it can be someone in the other part of the world willing to write a piece of software for you. So I'll give an example. You see this microphone here. When I started teaching, um, I realized that I need to devote, develop new set of skills now to teach online. So very quickly realized I can get a good camera and I can find that on YouTube and I can get many things. But once you get into a good microphone, you need to get a, you realize that the limits of what you know is, 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 is pretty low. And, and I, I went on Upwork and found a sound engineer, someone to, that is an actual guitar player that lives in Portland. Um, and, you know, I can spend hours on that. He spent years on that. So on, on a Zoom call, I, I took, it took me five minutes to post it on Upwork, five more minutes to interview three people, five more minutes to schedule the call, and then we spend an hour where I have an amplifier here and we optimize every level of that. Now, Wharton, where I work, cannot employ a sound engineer. They just don't have the, the interest in having someone like that for full time. He doesn't right. want to work with someone like me. He wants to work with rock bands. And, and you know, as, as cool as I am, as, as I think I am, I'm definitely not as cool, as cool as the people that you work with usually. And, and, and so it's a, that's to some extent, when people think about the gig economy, we tend to think about Uber and Lyft, but to me at least there is endless opportunities in trying to match between what people really want to do and the people have true needs rather than trying to just get into a full employment model, which is what we do now, where most of us, the majority of what we do is very limited in terms of value, in terms of the whole day. So the gig economy, is of, that's the, the idea if people want to think about that. And obviously, we've seen huge catalysts over the last few years, whether it's the, the globalization through the digital the digitalization, the connectivity of the entire world, the global pandemic, which drove everything online. And we're seeing the en entrance of, of billions of people into workforce that, that previously were, were much less accessible. But, but you're, you're also picking up on some interesting trends that you're observing now coming out of the pandemic that, that I think have, have really interesting insights. So, uh, for example, drivers. Right. So, so one thing that, that both Uber and Lyft are, are warning about, and we are seeing already, if you try to, to call an Uber over the last month, you notice two things. You, you notice very high prices, significantly more usage of surge pricing, and also significant longer waiting times. And, and it's not because of demand. And, and it is because of a combination of two things. Right, exactly. So demand actually has been going up, but you know, not significantly. The main thing is indeed, as you're saying, it's really the fact that drivers are reluctant to go back to work. And, you know, I, I've been following this industry for a while. So when COVID started last March, we noticed that actually the drivers kept on driving. The, the decline was primarily in demand. So people didn't want to use Uber. People didn't know. I mean, many places had lockdowns. More places stopped going to, to the office. So we saw a significant decline in demand, not so much a big decline in drivers. But what we're seeing now is actually we see the drivers are slower to come back. And then we, when you ask drivers why, they say to some extent, one of the interesting things about the gig economy is that 
Um, the firms don't employ these drivers, right? That's a big debate around the world, whether they should employ them or not, or, or like what's the right employment model, model, but they did not. And so most of them say, most of these firms treated us the same way that the cable firm is, is treating us. You know, they lure us initially into the service, they lock us in. The moment they're in, they start lowering down the incentives. And ultimately we end up with incentives initially, but now we're doing many short rides for very low price. We've been to that movie already. We don't want to go back. So that's one thing we definitely see. We see people questioning whether that's the right employment model for them now that they've seen it going once. The second thing we know is that the gig economy, to some extent, drivers have a very strong, and that's we've, we've worked with a firm and analyzed 8,000 drivers for a whole year. And we noticed that drivers have a very predictable behavior, predictable in the following way. The more you pay them, the more likely they are to drive. So pay is important, and I'm sure no one is shocked by that. But the shocking part was the fact that the longer they worked until now, the more likely they're going to continue to work, while the more they earn until now, the less, the less likely they're going to work. So basically what we're, going to, we're seeing is significant time-based inertia. And that's interesting primarily for two things. It's interesting because most of these drivers, actually, when you ask them why are they driving for Uber or Lyft, they say, I want flexibility. But in fact, when you see how they behave, flexibility is not what they look for. They look for, within that flexible world, they look for consistency. And now that they're not on the road, they say, well, actually, maybe I don't really need to go back. And that's basically, it's a cold start problem. The question for the firm is how do we bring them back? The interesting thing here is that, and, and why I'm not very optimistic for Uber or Lyft specifically, because it shows you what's going to happen in the gig economy in the future. You always have to compete, both on the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side, that's clearly, right? You always have to compete on us as drivers or as customers. But most of us use one service, either Uber or Lyft or DoorDash or Caviar, whatever we're using. But when it comes to drivers, our data shows that 40% of them multi-home. And to some extent, that's what I find really interesting in this new economy is most of us, when we decide on where to work, it's usually once a year, once in two years, maybe once in seven years if you're in academia. Here you see people that make decisions almost every 15 minutes. Wow. And most of them are comparing, and again, 40% of them within the same day work for multiple firms. And so it really requires to rethink the sort of a new type of labor economics to try to understand. And again, I'm not just interested in, in Uber and Lyft. I'm interested in the entire stack here because over time, more, more and more of our employment model is going to move to something that looks like that. And, and so I, I think there are many, many questions on that, but, but I think you know, our, our time is short. So, so I want to make sure we devote it to the things that are interesting for you. I love the extrapolation. You're looking at a specific case study that you're trying to understand the, 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 then the consumer behavior, the labor behavior of the drivers. And you're saying, okay, well, actually, there, there's, there's a growing trend here that is going all across the stack of the labor market. Now, before we move on to the next thing, well, what does this actually mean to, to, the, to the leaders, right? So the people that, yeah. are, that are thinking through these models, it's not just about how do I get people to buy, into, to buy into my app and to order the Uber, but now I actually have to cater to another set of the marketplace. And it's not as simple as offering them more, ben more health benefits and a higher rate wages, right? So that, that's a great question. And there are two things. One is you, we 
trained our managers to think very much consumer-based. So how do I think about my consumers? How do I think about my employees? We have to find managers to just think about the ecosystem. How do I create value in the ecosystem? And the ecosystem means that I'm primarily creating interactions rather than the one that manage each and every aspect of the relationship. That's one. The second thing, which I think is even more important, I think managers of the future will have to think about one of the main capabilities they will have to have is manage many stakeholders and manage many different employees that are not your employees. I think if you think about in the, in the past, you had your CEO, you had the COO, you had the VP, and, and the entire stack, and you knew that each stage had the hierarchy that they managed. In the future, you will have to think about how do you bring the right... Let's say the best crypto expert might not be your employees, but you need them for five minutes in a year and you will need to know how to orchestrate it. Right. We need to have to think about managers that don't think about how to create hierarchies, but how do I bring the right person to the right role at the right time? And how do I incentivize them? How to create the right structure? How do I motivate them? Maybe it's not about incentivization. Maybe it's about motivation to actually come there, do the best work and ultimately leave only to come back the year after that. Very different employment model, very different way of thinking about firms. I don't think we are ready. We're definitely not training our managers to think like that yet. Way too many questions are coming up. Eh, but but really what I'm what I want to use this time for is to understand a little bit you better. Because a lot of people are curious about these things. I'm deeply curious about these things. You can let me read articles day in and day out. What does it take, though, God, to become a, a thought leader in this space? which is ex exactly what you, what you embody. What, what, what type of thinking does it require? What does what your day-to-day -day work look like? Yes, it's a great question. I, I think to some extent, um, what, I think what makes for, for a, a good professor in an applied area, right? I mean, that people are doing, so my area is, is I call it applied theory, right? I, I look at areas that requires to build theory, but the very applied in the sense of taking firms deeper into what they do. And... I think what really makes what what was sort of like motivates me are, are looking at problems that from from the surface look simple, right? I mean, you say, well, drivers don't show up to work, and I start getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and I try to build very rigorous models that really look at each and every driver. And, and, and you look at our models that we build; these are very complex models that look probabilistically at how people are moving from places. But the point here is that you take something that is very strategic and simple and you dive deeper and deeper and deeper into really build new theory of how these drivers think and how callers think in a call center and how managers think in a supply chain. I don't want to say that all of these are similar, but all of them are, are similar in a sense that you're really getting to that to mystic level and trying to understand them. Only then to take that and use that to try to explain data and use it to go up. And one of the things I enjoy doing more and more in the last year or so is to write my newsletter where I try to take exactly these ideas and boil them down to something that I can explain in thousand words to someone that is not in the classroom, that is not an expert in research. And, and what I've seen is that the ability on one side to write a very rigorous paper, but at the same time to write a, a fairly broad audience, a, a sort of like newsletter, there is a very strong relationship between them in the ability to crystallize and make the the question clear, take the observation and make them clear, but then that actually initiates a new set of questions. And that's what academia is. It's the it's the constant question of every question, as you said, raises a set of a whole set of questions.
And, and if, you're, if you like that life of every time finding more questions than answers, academia is a perfect life for you. Does this rigorous way of thinking of problems day in and day out, real world problems that are presented every day, you, you, you mentioned to me that you're ordering an Uber and you're wondering to yourself, why is it taking longer now than before? Does this change the way that you that your relationship with the world or that your daily life in general? Do you do you see yourself evolving your your questioning also on just regular everyday things that aren't connected necessarily to the research that you're doing? So that's yeah. It's, it's, so I, I tell this I tell my students that um, after taking my course, they, there will be a new set of questions that will always ask themselves. They will not become happier people but they will become more informed people. And then, then to some extent, that's the issue, right? I mean, that you start seeing a cue everywhere you go. You start seeing inefficiency everywhere you go. Um, ultimately, you have to try to get away from that, but that's to some extent, really, I think, that I, I, I leave my research. And many of my questions started from, I'll give you just like one example. Uh, I, I wrote, I said the paper, a few years ago, I was invited by and and an Israeli club to give a talk on how is my research relevant to Israel. And my point was that it's actually not relevant. I do work on queuing, but queuing are the same. Queues are the same in Israel and everywhere else. But I gave a few examples where queues are different in Israel on the fact that people tend to, short, to, to always cut the line, that there is yeah. always coming and saying, I only have a question. And it, and it was a half joke. But then I took that joke and wrote a very rigorous paper about a repeated game theory model where people come with different requests and build a community and discuss the size of the community. And one of my most fun papers to write uh, with an economist, in fact, was exactly about this topic. So many times, something that even you don't think that actually is worth a paper, once you go deeper into that, you realize okay, there is a really interesting question here. Why cues are different in France versus the UK? Where is the culture coming? Where is the size of the community? Where are all of these coming? So to me, it's like I, I leave my research day to day and I take my experiences and try to inform the way I think about research. Amazing. I love it. God, I really want to thank you for coming. The 20 minutes go by way, way too fast. I still have a couple more questions, a little bit more digging into your past. And, and I want you to take me back to your childhood before you're, you're a professor of operations and queuing and scale and a thought leader. I want you to take me back to, you know, middle school. What, how, what is your childhood like? What, what really fascinates you as you're going about your life? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I talk about software and, 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 uh, I was fascinated with software from a very, very young age. I had a, I had a, a Sinclair a computer. I, had a, 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 I worked with it on a Commodore when we still had cassettes. Um, so I, I programmed since I, so since I was very, very young. I tell kids sometimes or, or people that apply to college that I'm not impressed if you send me a mock-up because when I was eight, I already wrote my first code and I didn't have Google or, or Stack Overflow to go and take the code for. I actually had to write it from a book line by line. So software always fascinated me. Um, and to this day, by the way, I, I still like to take a new language every summer and learn how to code. So in that sense, I think while that's not what I do full time, that's the notion of building software and building things is still something that fascinates me to this day. But that's, I, I remember my, that my first memories are exactly about this. So you're, wor you're working on a lot of fascinating things, but, but what really inspires you, either professionally or personally, as you go about your life right now? Yeah, so, so I, that's a, we're recording that in the summer, and every summer I, I choose two topics to, to study. Uh, and so this summer I chose solidity 
Uh, Ethereum is a way to try to program my first NFT. So at the end of the summer, I'll have my first NFT that I program myself. And the second one, I usually pick a philosopher to go deeper into that. And this summer is Hegel. So every summer I choose one very on the ground topic and one very ambitious topic. And ultimately at the end of the summer, I come a little bit more informed, not very informed, but dangerous enough to actually talk about that without actually knowing too much about that. So every summer I, I try to reignite this process because when you're in school, you learn just by osmosis sometimes. You, I mean, you, you get things to do and you learn. Once you're beyond that, you need to create a system that continuously takes you outside your comfort zone. I'm not sure if blockchain is going to be important, but I can, how can I talk about it unless I actually try to do something within that? I'm not an expert in epistemology, but I try to, to, to write about discussion boards, so I need to understand better these topics. So that's of like the constant idea of trying to infuse new ideas is something that going back to my uh, middle school experience very much stays until today. Never a boring conversation with you, trust me. And God, what are three words that you would use to describe yourself? Yeah, so this is some of the things we discussed already. So I think the first thing is rigorous. I, I, whenever I write something, whenever I do anything, I, I need to make sure that it's rigorous. I feel strongly about being applied. So I, I, I like things that have impact on real people. And the last one is integrative. I, I like things that integrate things from different areas. I discuss game theory and, 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 and queuing theory, but almost everything that I do has an integration. So rigorous, integration, and applied are, are sort of like my three main uh, ideas that when I think about the new project, what do I want to do? They should be there. God, thank you so much. This was uh, so enjoyable and, and interesting. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to adopt some of, some of the habits that you mentioned, because I think that they're, you know, I, I, can, I can feel the curiosity just emerging through this conversation here. And I, and I just love it. Thank you for the inspiration and stay safe and stay healthy. Oh, Michael, great to be here. Thank you.